All right, so we have been uh, in this, this series about making room for Jesus this Christmas. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about rest, how important it is to get rest, to rest in him so that you can make room and to let him rule and reign in your life. Last week, we talked about repentance because John the Baptist is that one who was born just before Jesus to, to teach us, to have this ministry of how important it is to repent so that we can make room for him. Today, we're just going to reflect. Uh, as, as Rick mentioned, we want to reflect on who he is, and there's really no better place to, to go to talk about that than Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, that is really where we see this anticipation of the coming Messiah, uh, who is going to be an incredible, incredible presence, not only in the life of the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And so we're going to look at that description today. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right into the text. Father, thank you for your word that it is always teaching us and molding us and showing us how to, uh, to follow you. It's showing us who you are so that we are uh, completely able to, to just move forward in our life. We understand you. We'll never understand you fully. I wouldn't want to worship a God I could completely understand, but we're thankful for the understanding that you do give us and today, as we reflect on who your son is and these, these names that you've given to him, help us to do that so that we might be ready for when he comes again. And so speak to me, Lord. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the year was 1992, and I was nine years old at the time. And the biggest movie of that holiday season was Home Alone 2. Starring Macaulay Culkin. Great movie. And, and for several years, my mom would always take us to a Wednesday matinee just before Thanksgiving. I think it was because she cleaned the house, and so she wanted us out of the house for that afternoon so we didn't mess it up. But I love going to, to the movies on that day. And I remember going and seeing Home Alone 2, that, the sequel to the first Home Alone. And normally a sequel is not as good as the first when you're nine years old, you don't care. Uh, it, it's, it was hilarious. I remember laughing so hard that my stomach hurt. In the movie, the main character, Kevin, uses a cassette recording device called a Talkboy. It looks something like this. And if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And, and it was actually a non-working prop. It didn't function at all. And it was only through kind of a major letter-writing campaign that they decided to actually create and produce this prop as a functioning recorder. And so the next Christmas in 1993, when I was 10 years old, they came out with a talk boy. And I wanted so badly to have a talk boy for Christmas. The commercials, I felt like every commercial break, it was about the talk boy. And I knew that if I got a talk boy, it changed my life forever. I just, I knew it. As a 10 year old, nine year old, I knew it would change my life forever. So Christmas Eve came. We always did Christmas Eve with my mom's mom. And so we go over to her house and we open up the stockings, we open up the gifts. No talk boy. 
Well, I figured my parents, they want to do it more, more of an intimate kind of thing, you know, on, on Christmas morning. When you're given the best gift, it needs to be, you know, in the, in the intimacy of your family. And so I thought, okay, tomorrow morning I'll get it. And I couldn't sleep the whole night. I mean, I, the anticipation was killing me. I, I got up early. I waked everybody up early. I shouldn't have. I don't think my parents like that. As a parent now, I don't like it. Uh, but but I, I woke them up early. Dad had to set up the camera. You remember the camera that was like this big, right? Like that big. He takes 45 minutes for him to set the camera up. I'm like, Dad, come on, come on, Dad. And so we start opening the stockings. Eventually, they would let us open two or three gifts. Not all of them, but two or three gifts. No talk, boy. Okay, okay, I get it. You want everybody to be here when the greatest present of the year is given. I understand. I understand. Okay, so everybody starts showing up. Again, the anticipation. I, I can barely stand it. One by one, they, they show up. Eventually, we take our place in the living room, and we pass out all of the presents, and you're starting to size it up, you know, which, which one could be the right shape. And so you're passing out the presents, and with the, the smell of fresh-baked cookies and hot rolls in the air, we began to tear open all the gifts. And one by one, I went through, and, and, and I started to get a little worried. And then we got finally down to the last gift, and I tore off the wrapping paper. And I opened the box to a neatly folded pair of pants. No talk, boy. I never told anybody that I was upset. Honestly, I don't know if I told my parents I wanted one. That's how bad it is. But my eager anticipation that started really the year before from seeing the movie was now just kind of no more. Have you ever anticipated something that much where you just, you had to have it, you had to see it, you had to hold it? I think the Israelites had that kind of anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. I think they wanted so badly for that baby to be born. And, and that anticipation for me was over a, a cassette recorder. Some of you are young enough, you don't, may not know what a cassette is. My kids might not. But, but imagine their anticipation is for the anointed one. I mean, I could hardly stand it as a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old. Can you imagine what it would have been like to anticipate the Messiah and then for that day to finally come. You know, Israel's ministry, or I should say Isaiah's ministry, his ministry spans about 50 years. It's a very long ministry. His ministry, though, is an interesting one because it's during a time of a lot of upheaval. There, there's different people who are threatening Judah, and, and he's just... He's just in that kind of a ministry that's a struggle. He is speaking to an inattentive people, or if they were attentive, they just really wouldn't listen, or they didn't want to respect what he had to say. But there was a few. There were a few, a remnant of people who still had that anticipation of a Messiah. And so he describes to them what that Messiah would look like as this baby born in a manger. And because of that anticipation, I'm sure that year after year they thought, one day he's going to be here, someday he'll come. I hope that you're living with that kind of anticipation, just hoping, waiting, looking for the return of Christ, because that's what we anticipate now. He's already come once, now he's going to come again. And for us to anticipate correctly, we need to reflect on who he is. We need to reflect on why he came 
And you may be wondering, well, why do we reflect on something that happened in the past? Why do we go back to Isaiah chapter 9 to reflect on that? Don't we need to move forward? Well, of course we need to move forward. We need to move the kingdom forward. We will move the kingdom forward. But it is so important that we do take time to reflect on certain things. Communion is a time of reflection. What we just did is so important. Your baptism is something that you should reflect upon. It is something you should look back to, to say on this date, for me it's July 3rd, on this date, there was a transformation that took place. It was a pivotal change in my life. So reflecting on who Jesus is allows us to kind of relinquish control, let him rule and reign in our life. Now why would you do that? Why would you give him control in that way? Well, because of who he is. Who is he? Glad you asked. Isaiah tells us who he is. In Isaiah 9, 6, he says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to reflect on those four descriptions of him today. And maybe by reflecting on these descriptions, you will find a way to give him more control, to make more room for him and give him the room in your life that he deserves because he wants the best for you and for his kingdom. First, he's wonderful counselor. I think that's something that we all need, a wonderful counselor. It seems like people from really all walks of life are searching for advice and counsel and yet there seems to be more and more people who are offering a solution that may not always be the best. The biggest section in the bookstore is the self-help genre. When you go onto social media, really most of the advertisement and even what the, the influencers, the social media influencers are trying to, to sell you is something for yourself. It's self-care, it's self-help, it's self-something. We're constantly bombarded from all directions about how we can improve ourselves. But we have something, in fact we have someone who cuts through all of that chaos, all of that language, all of that junk, and he is the wonderful counselor. The Hebrew word for wonderful it signifies something great, something so tremendous, so amazing, that it cannot be described with words. Something that transcends human experience or imagination. So when scripture refers to Jesus as wonderful counselor, it doesn't mean he just gives good advice. It means that he understands things which are beyond our ability as, as finite minds to comprehend. Job 12, 13 says, But true wisdom and power are found in God. Counsel and understanding are his. He knows things only God can know. He knows the ways of God. He understands God's plan and purpose for every single person. His knowledge, his intelligence, his wisdom, and his insight far exceed that of any man who ever lived, even if you throw Solomon in the mix. So in Jesus Christ, we have someone who, by virtue of his great knowledge and understanding, is abundantly qualified to guide and direct our lives. And sometimes... Even though we, we get confused with this, sometimes we don't go to him. And yet he is the one qualified to understand everything about us and everything that we ought to do. How, how come we don't always see Christ this way? Do you see him as someone who is that wonderful counselor? And if we do, why do we not always go to him first? 
We need to. We need to, church. It's vital that we seek wisdom from those around us who are wise. Seeing a professional counselor is someone who can absolutely help you through the troubles of life, especially if they're a Christian counselor, because then they are being led by the Holy Spirit. They are being led by the wonderful counselor. But you need to remember what James 1.5 says. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Just ask. When you're having those moments and you're not sure what to do, it's fine to go ask a, a co-worker or go ask even a professional counselor. Don't forget to ask the wonderful counselor. He has the answers. We need to recognize that. We need to remember that. I want to echo a prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. And I want to just speak it over us today. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what he says. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. That is my prayer. I know these are Paul's words. That's my prayer over you guys. I remember the first Sunday that I snuck in here. <laughs> Few people knew. But I got to see what this church was like. I got to see how the leadership operated. and I'm, I'm being completely honest. I have not stopped thanking God for you. I have not. And, and I want to continue this prayer. I pray for you constantly. I do. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Do you understand? That's who you are in Christ because he is the wonderful counselor. And don't you see that going to the wonderful counselor will provide you with the spiritual insight you need to not only know him better, but to understand what he has planned for your life. Go to the wonderful counselor because the child who was born changed everything. And he can change your life too. That's why we reflect on who he is. The second description that we see in Isaiah chapter 9 is that he's mighty God. And this description of Jesus is, is so important because Jesus is fully God. God in all of his wisdom, all of his power, all of his might. God in all his infinite goodness, all of his grace, all of his mercy. The God who has no beginning and has no end, who exists for eternity past, who will exist into eternity future. That same God is Jesus. And we need to believe that and understand that. But not everyone liked that thought when he walked the earth. And in fact, there are some today who will preach that Jesus never claimed to be God. And church, if you hear that, if you see that on social media, you need to understand that what that person is saying is a lie. They are a, they are a false teacher, or at the least they are teaching a counterfeit false gospel. Jesus is mighty God. He claims to be God very clearly, especially in John chapter 10, verse 30. Here's what Jesus says. The Father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, at my Father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, 
but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. How anyone can ever say that Jesus did not claim to be God, I guess they've never read John 10.30. I guess. I don't know. Because he was not just a baby in that quaint little manger in Bethlehem. He was mighty God. And I love the meaning of the word mighty in Hebrew. It means manly, vigorous, hero, or champion. Yeah, that is what he is for us and more. When our boys were young, uh, we used to have them sing, My God is So Big, a song. And uh, I, part, partly we had them sing it because when they're toddlers and they do the motions, it's funny to watch. But it, it, also, it also just has really good theology. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the valleys below, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. You don't always get good theology in a children's song, but that is really good theology. And I know it is a children's song, but do you believe that? Do you believe that you serve a strong and mighty God and that there's nothing he would not do for you according to his will? He is our mighty God. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, Matthew 28, 18, that, that great commission, we sometimes leave out the very beginning of it where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, I am him. Like, I, I am God. I've already told you this before. It's been written about me in the past. In Isaiah 9, 6, it, it's written about me. But all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He has that authority. And we need to reflect on that so that we are more ready for his return. <coughs> Next description is Jesus as everlasting Father. Another description of Jesus is God, really. He and the Father truly are one along with the Spirit. In Matthew 1.23, it says, Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Again, proving yet again Jesus is God. That's what Jesus was. He, he was God with us. He was in our midst. He was walking among us. By referring to the Messiah as everlasting Father, Isaiah is alluding to the fact that he really is God. And remember, the people that he's writing this to don't have a clear understanding of the Trinity. That's not something that they understood at this point. And so he is trying, in any way that he can, Isaiah is trying to somehow explain to them what it will be like when God becomes man. That it, he will be an everlasting father. When he comes to this earth, he is going to do some amazing things. And it was hard for them to wrap their head around that, but they understood that God would be their savior. God would be their rescuer, their king. See, we quote John 14, 6 pretty often. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But there's, there's more to that that we need to read. In verses 7 through 10, Jesus says, If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. We'll, we'll be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? 
don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. A little boy came up to me after, I think, second service last week. And he asked me, what does God look like? That's a good question. I took him here. Took him here because what does God look like? He looks like Jesus because Jesus and the Father are one. And then I took him to Revelation 1 where there is this beautiful description of Jesus. And if Jesus is God, then that is what God looks like in some way. That's the best answer I can give. But anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father because Jesus fully reveals God. And only God can reveal God. And as the book of Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And then just a few chapters later, an incredible thing happens. God calls his son God. In Hebrews 1.8, it says, but to the son, he says, the he is God, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. God calls Jesus God. There is nothing true about God that is not also true about Jesus. And so when Isaiah calls him mighty God, everlasting father, it is so important that we reflect on that and understand that, that the baby born in Bethlehem is Emmanuel, is God with us. Jesus identifies himself as God the Father. God himself right here calls his son God. And we could go on and on. The bottom line is Jesus is God, period. And for those who follow him, we get to enjoy the company of an everlasting father for all of eternity. And Hebrews 13, 5 says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. See, that's why the description of everlasting father matters. That's why it matters how you think about who he is, how you reflect on these descriptions. That's why we care that that Jesus never changes and he never will. He will never cease to exist because the good things he is to us now, he will always be that for us. He will always be provider, protector. He will always be our savior. He will always be our refuge, both now and for eternity. In Christ, we're going to be eternally blessed and secure. He's always going to keep his promises. How badly they must have wanted that baby to arrive so that all of this would be present. Do you understand how blessed we are to be on this side of the covenant? I mean, we we are truly blessed. The last, the final phrase that Isaiah uses to describe Jesus is Prince of Peace. And that's certainly one that we enjoy. It's one that we know so well. Maybe the most loved description of who Jesus is. Even even for the unchurched, they kind of uh, understand him as that way, as this person who is supposed to bring peace. And when the angels announced his birth uh, to the shepherds, in Luke 2, 14, they sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. 
It just kind of warms our hearts to think about this, this newborn baby in a manger, watched over by his loving parents, worshipped by the shepherds, eventually by the magi. And from our perspective, nothing really breaks the, the solitude or the silence and that vision of peace and tranquility is in our Christmas cards and our, our nativity scenes that we put on our mantles. And it's even seen in, in the songs that we sing, silent night, holy night, all is calm. All is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. And yet, tragically, that peace doesn't last all that long. As the Gospel of Matthew tells us, Herod finds out about this this king, this newborn king, a potential rival for his throne, and he orders the slaughter of every male child under the age of two in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph, infant Jesus, they escape. If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, why why does that happen? If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, why does he say this to his disciples in Matthew 10, 34? Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. Wait, what? That's the Prince of Peace? How do we reconcile these two passages? We need to understand the kind of peace that he brought might be different than what we think. Now, did Jesus come to bring peace between people? To a degree, he did. He did. And inside the church, he wants us to live in peace as best that we can. In fact, Romans 12, 16 says to live in harmony with each other, to not be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Don't think you know it all. I like that part. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. In Christ... We can absolutely love one another and do our best to try to live in peace. I think the very fact that we have the Spirit testifies to that fact. There is something unique about just being a follower of Christ, and there's something supernatural to that. It's because we have the Spirit. However, eliminating all conflict between people, that's hard. We saw, we see there in Matthew 10 that the gospel, the good news of this forgiveness of sins through Christ, it sometimes causes divisiveness, even in the most intimate relationships. Some of you have family members that you love dearly. You don't judge them. You don't condemn them. You're not trying to insult them. But the very fact that you follow Christ antagonizes them in some way. There are some people in some cultures who, if they choose to follow Christ, will be completely disowned and rejected from their families. In some cultures, they will have a funeral for that person as if they died. And so we, we look at this and say, okay, he's the Prince of Peace, but, but how? I mean, how, 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 do we, how do we reconcile this? Well, I think 2 Corinthians 2.14 can help us. It sort of gives us the answer of, of why the gospel is, is sometimes offensive to certain people. 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, But thank God he's made us his captives, continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere, like a sweet perfume. 
Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we're a dreadful smell of death and doom, but to those who are being saved, we're life-giving perfume. And who's adequate for such a task as this? In other words, we smell like Christ. And to some degree, that's a good thing. And sometimes our culture accepts that. And sometimes it doesn't. We carry that spiritual aroma around with us. And when you run into each other and you're out and about shopping or wherever you may be, or maybe you run into somebody who is a Christian and you don't know them, but you figure it out, there is that sort of sweet aroma. Like you know that you are followers of Christ, but to the unchurched, sometimes we just stink. We just just don't smell right to them. And so I would say if your faith, not that it should always do this, but it should at times do this, if your faith does not provoke any negative reaction in people, do you really smell like Christ? Perhaps our peace has been purchased at the cost of silence. We're cool with you guys doing your religious thing. Just do it over there quietly. Yeah, we're not going to be able to do that. That's not how the gospel works. Sorry. And so sometimes when we go about spreading the good news, it just doesn't smell right to some people. And so did the Prince of Peace come to create peace in that way? No. No. Did he come so that we would have just a trouble-free life? Some people believe that. No, Scripture's pretty clear. You get to drink from the cup of thanksgiving, but you also have to drink from the cup of suffering. And so, if we can't necessarily expect relational peace or peace in our circumstances, what kind of peace did he bring? He brought peace as the Prince of Peace. He brought peace between us and God. It's a peace in our souls. We were separated from God because of our sin. And he brought us reconciliation between us and God. And that is the kind of peace he offers. In John 16, Jesus says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So there is a little bit of a catch. Even this peace that he brings, the peace in our souls, the peace between us and God, is still going to come with struggle. It's still going to come with trials, and that's okay. We live in a fallen world, but Jesus has overcome that world. He has overcome sin and death on our behalf. And so during this Christmas season, we tend to focus on the miracle of Christ's birth, as we should. The shepherds, the angels, the magi, the first-time mother giving birth in the hay, the beauty, the innocence of that baby in a manger, and it is entirely appropriate for us to focus on that. But we also need to remember why he came. He had to come because we needed a savior desperately. Not just another religious leader, not a good moral example that some people will say that he was. We needed God in the flesh to be our savior. There was always a measure of anticipation even for that little remnant of people who still followed God in those 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And then the Messiah came, the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, was here. He was only here for about 33 years. He ascended back to heaven, but before he left, he said this in John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. He's coming again, guys. There is anticipation for those remnant of people that the Messiah would come. Is there anticipation in your life right now for the return of our Savior? And if you wonder, how is it going to happen? And I know that's a question that's on a lot of people's minds when you look around the world. How is he going to come back? What will it look like? When will it be? Well, I can't tell you the when, but I can actually tell you the how. He told us the how. In Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence. He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep at his right hand and goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you? And on and on it goes. When did we ever see you hungry? I mean, when did we see you having any of these things going on? We don't remember any of this. You you were never these things. And he says, I tell you the truth, that when you did it for one of the least of these, You're doing it for me. And then he looks to those on his left, and it's not so good. Because he said, you know, when you ignored the sick, the imprisoned, the thirsty, the naked, you were ignoring me. You see, guys, how you anticipate his return matters. How you reflect upon who he is makes a big difference in your life so that you can make room for him, so that you can make room for the anticipation of his return. I anticipated that talk boy like you wouldn't believe as a dumb 10-year-old. Not that all 10-year-olds are dumb, just me. But I was overwhelmed with anticipation. Maybe this year we could find a way to be overwhelmed with the anticipation of his return. As we think about this baby being born, and we're going to talk about that next week. But maybe we need to anticipate it a little more. And in the meantime, what do we do? Well, we we feed the hungry. We give a drink to the thirsty. We invite strangers into our home. Show them hospitality. We clothe those who don't have proper clothing. We visit those who are sick and those who are in prison. That's how we live now. Because it's our turn to anticipate the return of the Messiah. I'm sure I am positive that remnant thought the day of his coming would never get there. But it did. 
And I don't know where we are in the timeline. I can't tell you that. I look around in our world and I think, man, I feel like he's got to be coming back soon. But I'm sure many people throughout history have thought that. Here's what I can tell you. I'd really like to be here when he does. I just That's selfish. I, maybe, maybe you get the same experience after you've died and you're in his presence. But maybe you don't. I know it's a little different. Scripture describes it a little different. Man, I really would like to be here to just see him burst through the clouds. Do you anticipate his return or do you live as if he's not coming back? I had a professor ask a question. I think it was in a 1 Corinthians class. And he, he posed the question to the class and he said, what do you think would happen if Jesus was returning, bursting through the clouds, and in that moment, you were committing a sin. Now, in Bible college, you only raise your hand if you know you're going to be right, because you just don't want to be that guy. So we're all silent. We, we know the answer, but we don't want to accidentally say the wrong thing. And he says, you'd still go to heaven, but you'd be really embarrassed. Church, do you anticipate his return? Or are you living as if he's not coming back? Because how we live while we anticipate his return shapes the very kingdom he established here on earth. So reflect on who he is. Wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, so that you can make room for him. Let him rule and reign in your life. Because he's coming back. Isaiah 9, 7 says his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. How's that going to happen? Well, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Reflect on who Jesus is this Christmas so that you're ready for his return. Father, we thank you just so much that you give us all of these different descriptions of who your son is, even as far back as Isaiah. And we thank you that you sent him to this earth and we celebrate that this time of year. But help us to reflect on who he is, to reflect that he is wonderful counselor, that he has all of the, the wisdom that we could ever need. We just have to ask that he is mighty God. He claimed that. He is that. We believe that. He is our everlasting Father, and I'm so thankful that he is. And he is that Prince of Peace. We have peace between us and you because of what he did on the cross. And so help us, as we concentrate on a baby born in a manger, that we remember who he is, what he would grow up to be, what he would accomplish for us, so that we might be absolutely ready, when you're ready, to send him back. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.